I want to start this morning with a question, as I often like to do. What do you think it would take to amaze Jesus? Now, what would it take to amaze you? Let's start there. What causes you to be astonished, to be amazed, to marvel at something? Now, you can go into a big city and you can look up at these huge buildings and you can marvel. You can see an athletic feat and you can marvel. You can taste something delicious and you can be amazed at how good it tastes. We often are easy to impress. We are easy to amaze. But now, what about Jesus, who is the creator of all things? the one who has all power, what would it take to amaze him? The Bible tells us. It wasn't actually buildings. When Jesus went to the marvelous city of Jerusalem and saw this this gorgeous temple in all its glory, his disciples said, see the buildings of this temple? Jesus was thoroughly unamazed. He said, it's going to be not some time and all these buildings are going to be knocked down. There's not going to be one stone left on top of the other. That didn't amaze him. Jesus wasn't amazed by celebrity. He wasn't amazed by wealth. A rich young ruler came to him and said, hey, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, go take everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me and then you'll have treasures in heaven. I mean, who treats rich people like that? Jesus wasn't amazed by the kind of things that you were amazed by. In fact, there are only two stories in our entire New Testament when the gospel writers account for us that Jesus was amazed. The word in our King James Bible is marveled. He marveled. It has the idea of being astonished, of being amazed. Two stories. One of those stories has two different accounts, same word, but it's really only two stories. The first is in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus has a centurion, a Roman officer, a high-ranking officer in the Roman military. They were dominating. They were ruling the land of Judea, the people of the Jews as part of the Roman Empire. He came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, my servant is lying at home. He's grievously sick. Please heal him. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And he says, Jesus, just say the word. You don't need to come. Just say the word. He says, because I'm also a man under authority. I have a boss over me, and therefore I can say, come, and someone comes. Why? Because I have the power? No, because I'm under someone's authority. And therefore, when I say come, he comes. And I say, go, and he goes. And Jesus looks at him, and it's as if you can see his jaw dropping. Here is a Gentile man, not even a Jew. And the Bible said he marveled. He was amazed at this Gentile man's faith. Just say the word. And he said, your servant is healed. And he went home and he was healed. That's something that amazed Jesus. Faith. This morning we're going to look at the story. The only other time, the only other story in all the Gospels when Jesus was amazed. And do you know what also had to do with faith? What does that tell you about what amazes Jesus? What does that tell you about the value that Jesus puts on faith if what amazes him is the extent of your faith, how great is your faith, or conversely, how little you have? 
Notice with me in Mark chapter 6, will you? I hope if you have your Bible this morning with us, you'll open and follow along with our text as we continue working through Mark's gospel together. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 6. Speaking of the people in his hometown of Nazareth, he says, and he marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed because of their unbelief. Great faith amazes Jesus. Do you know what also amazes Jesus? For certain people, no faith. This morning I want to speak on the subject amazing unbelief. Amazing unbelief. And I want to ask you this morning, not whether your faith is such that Jesus would be amazed, but is your unbelief such that Jesus, like those at Nazareth, would be amazed. What's the context here? We always start when we come to a text of the Bible with what's going on here. And what's going on here, we saw last week, Jesus has healed two people in Capernaum. Amazing stories. A woman who's had an issue of blood, a flow of blood for 12 years comes to Jesus behind him and touches his garment because by faith she says, I just need to touch his garment and I'll be better. I just need to grab hold of him. And he comes up, she comes up behind him and she grabs his garment and she immediately feels that she is healed. Immediately the blood flow stops, the hemorrhage stops. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? He knew. He knew that someone had been healed and he was offering, he was bringing that person forward. He's bringing this woman forward to comment on her faith and finally she comes forward, she tells him the entire truth and he says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you better. And off she goes. Jesus, prioritizing, valuing faith. And you remember this whole time, this has been a delay. It's been an interruption in another story where a man has come to Jesus and he's told him about his little daughter at home. This is a, a, a ruler of the synagogue, an important religious official. His 12-year-old girl is lying at home. She's at the point of death. And as Jesus delays in coming to deal with this woman, a servant comes and says, she's dead. Don't even bother Jesus anymore. And Jesus immediately looks at that man and he says, don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, only believe. And onward they go to that house. Jesus kicks out all those who are scoffing at him when he says she's just sleeping. No, she was actually dead, but Jesus was saying it's as if she was sleeping. And Jesus speaks to her. He grabs her by the hand and he takes her up. Little girl, it's time to get up is really in the essence of what he's saying. Little girl, get up. And she gets up and she is alive. We talked about, we saw those two amazing pictures of faith. And now immediately we learn in verse one, notice. And he went out from thence. Where? From Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. On the northwest side, the northern side of the Lake of Galilee. So Jesus says, we've been seeing so much of what he ministered to there. And now he is going to come into his own country and his disciples follow him. You say, what do you mean his own country? The idea of is his own place. This is his hometown. Now again, if we're just thinking geographically. He, was, he grew up in Galilee, which was a large province. We might think of it as a state. 
And he was often working in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. But he also, where he grew up, was not Capernaum. It was Nazareth. It was a place, a journey from Capernaum. And it was not a seaside town. It was farm town. It was a little farming village. As I saw in my study, some people think that there may have been 100 or 200 people in this small farming town. And it would not have been more than 500 I want to just ask, did any of you in this room grow up in a town of less than 500 people? Did anyone grow up in a town of less than 500 people? All right, I see Miss Elizabeth did. Anyone else? Okay, so Miss Elizabeth, you're going to have to be our expert here for us this morning, okay? We're just going to ask Miss Elizabeth what it's like to grow up in a town of less than 500 people. But I'm going to guess when you grow up in a town of less than 500 people, you know everybody. You know everyone knows everybody. Everyone knows everybody's kid. It is just that kind of town. It's that kind of place. Jesus grew up here. He lived here for 30 years of his life, as best we know, or thereabouts. Obviously, he spent some time in Bethlehem. He spent some time in Egypt as a very young child. Not quite 30 years, but certainly it seems the bulk of it. Now, what happens when he goes there? We're going to see amazing unbelief. Let's start, first of all, in verse number two. It says, and when the Sabbath day was come, so the seventh day of the week, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, this is what Jesus did wherever he went. If he was in a Jewish town, he'd go into a place like Capernaum, and because he was known as a teacher, the local synagogue would say, would you like to get up and teach? And we've seen him do that before. In fact, Luke chapter four records another time he came to Nazareth and taught in the synagogue. This is not his first time coming back to Nazareth, it seems, as a visiting teacher, his hometown. That time, they were so mad at him, they tried to kill him. The hometown boy. You can look it up in Luke chapter 4. Jesus now goes on a period of ministry away from there, and now he comes back as if he's giving them a second chance. Some of us are very glad that Jesus gave us a second chance, aren't we? and a third chance, and a fifth chance, and a tenth chance, and a twentieth chance before we got saved. That's the heart of Jesus. And he was going to go back to his hometown, not just to care for his family or to be a good son. He was going there to teach. Why? Because his disciples went with him. This was his official ministry. And now he's going from Capernaum, where he had spent so much of his time, he's going back to the hometown. And you can imagine how famous Jesus was at this point. He had been known for, as being a teacher. He had been known as being a healer. And now you can imagine, were crowds following him? Perhaps. Certainly news would have come from Capernaum. Did you hear what he did with this synagogue official's girl, raising her from the dead? Did you hear about this woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years? Did you hear what he did to the leper? Did you hear what he did to the man who was paralyzed? And they let him down through a roof. And he got up and said, take up your bed and go. They would have heard these things. Now listen to what happens. Jesus begins to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought or worked by his hands? What are they saying? In plain English, they're saying, what's going on with this guy? Who is this guy? I mean, they know who this guy is. 
But they're listening to him teach, and the idea of them being astonished in the original Greek is literally, they are blown away. That would be, that would be a way you could put this in an idiom form. They are blown away. It literally means they're cast out of their mind. They're just, they're just completely flabbergasted. Who is this guy? How did he get this wisdom? We knew him for all these years. What happened to him? How does this guy have these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him? And now notice that even such mighty works are worked or wrought by his hands. Now, we're going to see later, it doesn't seem that Jesus did any significant miracles there other than healing a few sick people. And my best guess is that he healed those sick people privately. We'll see why. I don't think they're commenting on him doing miracles in the public synagogue and saying, wow, how is he doing this? I think they're, they're relying on the reports that they heard. How is it that this guy has, has these amazing miracles that we've heard of? The point is this. This is our first point this morning. We need to look, first of all, at their perception of him, what they could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears. Their perception of him was to be astonished. Many people were astonished when they heard Jesus preach. The reason they were astonished is because, as we learn elsewhere from Scripture, he preached as someone who had authority. You say, what does that mean? Well, we have all probably heard someone who speaks authoritatively. They speak like they know what they're talking about. But then there was Jesus, who you could tell actually knew what he was talking about. Commentators tell us that in the Jewish world of that day, in the synagogue, someone would get up to teach one of the rabbis, and his idea of teaching was to quote other rabbis. As so-and-so rabbi has said, and so-and-so rabbi has said, and this distinguished rabbi has commented on this like this, and they are just taking what other people say and teaching them, not Jesus. Jesus said things like, you have heard that it's been said by them of old time, the rabbis say this, but I say unto you. And everyone would have said, huh? That, that's not how rabbis normally preach in our town. They couldn't get over that he had authority to say, this is what God meant the whole time. And so they undoubtedly would have been astonished probably at something similar. Jesus was speaking authoritatively with the very, as the very mouth of God, from God's mouth to man's ears, thus saith the Lord. And they were astonished. Not only that, but also what they had heard of, and perhaps some of these people had even seen themselves, whether at Capernaum or other places, they had seen themselves or heard of the miracles. Their perception was that he was different. Something about him amazed them. They were blown away by this man that they had previously known. The point is this. The perception that they had was truly significant of who this man was. But secondly, we need to see their prejudice. Their prejudice. What ultimately happened was their perception butted up against their prejudice. And we're going to see which one prevailed. Sadly, their perception didn't prevail. Their prejudice did. Now, what is prejudice? We hear prejudice, the word prejudice, often. We actually have an idea of what it means from the very word itself. The word itself is really just two 
kinds of two ideas stuck together. It's a Latin word, and you can just break it up like this. Prejudice means pre, that's the prefix, pre, which means before, and prejudice. That's the word from which we get our word judicial. It's to make a judgment. To, to have prejudice is to prejudge. It is to make judgments ahead of your perceptions. You see and you already have a judgment before you have known and experienced. And do you know what's undoubtedly true, friends? Every single one of us, by nature, are prejudiced. We make pre Judgments. Do you know this is necessary in some ways for us to survive? That's why it's natural. Do you know our ancestors, as hunter-gatherers, when they were running around and they saw a bear? Our ancestors did not have time to stop and think, I wonder if this bear has had breakfast today. I wonder if he's feeling hungry right now. I wonder if I'm going to be able to survive if I don't run. They didn't have time to do that. It was simply see bear, prejudge bear, run from bear. Right? It, that's a prejudice. Were they prejudiced against bears? Are you prejudiced against bears? I hope so if you see them in the wild. What is it? It is simply to prejudge. We look at something that we've never tried before, and we say, that looks gross. I've never tried it before, but I am going to prejudge that. I am prejudiced against that. Now, the first thing that we are ordinarily and normally prejudiced against are things that are different from us or different from our experiences. This is absolutely just natural to who we are as human beings. We see something that we haven't experienced before or that we've experienced in a way that has been dangerous or unpleasant to us. And from that point forward, we make a judgment. We make a pre-judgment. This is why we talk about prejudice in the form of people who are different from us. We make prejudgments against classes of people based on their skin color, on their political views, on the way, on their socioeconomic stance. Are they rich? Well, we know how rich people are. Is that person poor? We know how poor people are. Is that person homeless? We know how homeless people are. And we do not judge them appropriately. We judge them with our prejudgment. Now again, friends, this is just entirely natural to who we are as human beings, but it's no less wrong when we act on it. Why is that? Because Jesus said, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. When I prejudge someone according to their appearance, I am violating what Jesus says. Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. In other words, judge according to the truth. Judge not how that person appears, but judge what is real. Judge by what you experience from them. This is, again, it is something absolutely simple. Now, I'm just going to say it. I wonder if there's someone from a, a certain political perspective that says, okay, Pastor Peter's going woke this morning. And the simple point is no. Because the Bible shows this clearly. The Bible shows this. Do you remember one of Jesus' disciples who came to Jesus to become one of his disciples? He was a man named Nathaniel. 
And Jesus called him an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. He was an utterly sincere, righteous man. And do you know what he also was? He was a prejudiced man. How do you know that? Because when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, this small farming community, do you know what he said? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He didn't know Jesus. All he knew was that Nazareth was a backward, hick farming community. And he said, nothing good comes out of there. What was that? Was that a righteous judgment according to Jesus, the Messiah? Of course it was not. It was a prejudiced assessment. And do you know what Philip said? It was very wise. He said this. He said, come and see. Do you know the answer to our natural prejudices against people who are different from we are? Come and see. Don't judge according to the appearance. Don't judge by your previous experience. Well, everyone that I've known who believes this is, no. Judge righteous judgment. Come and see. And what happened to Nathaniel when he came and saw? He saw that something truly good had come out of Nazareth. Jesus, his savior, had come out of Nazareth. Now, this is just a very simple point, and I want to just make this point, and then we'll move on. We as Christians should be the most sensitive to our prejudices we should be the most aware of how easily we make snap judgments on our appearances and we don't judge righteous judgment. Why? Because we want to be politically correct? No, because we are Christians who are humble people. We say, I know how sinful I am. I know how often I get things wrong. I know how often my preconceptions are wrong. I know how much I need grace. And because people who are humble are the ones who are able to say, I've got a lot of things to deal with myself. I know I judge according to the appearance way too much. We should be the ones who are most sensitive, most humble, most willing to confront our own pre-judgments on the basis of appearance. But I want you to notice something about these people. They were not pre-judging people like we often do on someone who is different from them. Their prejudgment was based on someone who was the same as them. They were not prejudging Jesus because you're some foreigner coming in here and trying to tell us that you're the son of God. That wasn't their prejudice. Their prejudice was you're coming in here telling us that you're the messenger of God and you are our neighbor. You're just like us. And friends, do you know for some of us it's way harder to hear the truth about God from someone who's close to us and like us and in our circle than someone who's outside of it. This prejudice was on the basis of how much they were like him, not how different they were. Listen to what they said in verse three. Is not this the carpenter? What is that? What did Jesus do until he went into ministry at age 30? He was a carpenter. The idea was he was a builder. He built stuff. Now, isn't it a wonderful thing that our Savior came down to be, in our terms, a blue-collar laborer who worked with his hands? That's got to be a wonderfully encouraging thing. He was a guy who knew how to work. He knew how to do stuff. He knew how to build stuff. He knew how to work with his hands. This was our Savior, our Lord, our King. And they said, isn't this the carpenter? That's how they knew him. Some of these people probably had a dresser or something that he put together. 
That's how they knew him. Look at this. The son of Mary. Now stop there for just a minute. When they say the son of Mary, this was odd. Because in that day, you called people by whose name? Their mom's name or their dad's name? For them to call him the son of Mary, some people believe this was an intentional slight against him to again point back to the fact they knew Joseph wasn't his dad. You remember what the Pharisees would say about Jesus. We know where we came from. We don't know where you came from. What's that saying? Which Roman soldier impregnated your mom? How did she get pregnant with you? We know it wasn't Joseph. This was a slander that went around against Jesus for his entire ministry. And this may have been them saying, son of Mary, huh? Son of Mary. Whether it was intentional or not, they were pointing out, Mary lives here. We know Mary. Notice what else they said. And the brother of James and Joses and of Judah and Simon. They knew his brothers. They were in town. By the way, those who are Roman Catholics and those who believe that Jesus never, or that Mary was a perpetual virgin, she never had any other children, she never had a husband her entire life, just point them to this passage. Mark 6 says he had brothers. It says he had sisters. It's not the truth. It's not what our Bible tells us. Notice also what it says. And are not his sisters here with us? We know his whole family. I mean, you can just imagine someone of the older people of the community saying, I bounced him on my knee in the synagogue nursery. I changed his stinky diaper. We know the whole family. That's the idea. Now, what's the problem with this kind of prejudice? What is it rooted in? This kind of prejudice is rooted in pride. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Don't think that you can leave from this, your hometown and go be a big shot and then come back and tell us what to do. You're still the carpenter. We know your family, Jesus. What are you getting so uppity about? You put your pants legs on one leg at a time just like the rest of us. There is, seems to be a prejudice here that they were not willing to hear the truth no matter what their perception said about him. They weren't willing to hear the truth from someone that close to them. And now let's bring it home. Isn't that true for some of us? We'll hear the truth from our pastor, but not from our spouse. No, no. That hits our pride. We'll hear the truth from the evangelist who comes through town, but not from our kids, not from our, not from our parents. That hits too close to home. We'll hear it from someone outside our circle, but we won't hear it from our boss. Nope, that's too close. You see, our pride combines with our prejudice. You know, I feel like I had a good title there that I missed that one there. Yeah, we'll let that one go. Our pride combines with our prejudice and says, I'm not going to listen to you. You're too much like me. I can't humble myself to hear the truth from you. This prejudice was them. It was, it, it was rooted in their pride. And notice then what it says here of them in verse number three. And they were what? They were what? 
They were offended at him. Do you know what the word is? The word in the Greek is the word that we get scandal from. They were scandalized by him. The idea is they tripped up over it. They couldn't get over it. Here this man is speaking their perception. Look at these beautiful words he's speaking. Look at we've heard about all these wonderful miracles that they've done. And then their prejudice gets in the way, combined with their pride, and they say, we're not listening to the guy, the guy who grew up down the block. We're not going to do it. We're not going to grow up to the guy who's the carpenter. We're not going to listen to him. He's not some big fancy rabbi from Jerusalem. We might listen to that guy, but we're not listening to him. It was resulting in offense. But here's ultimately what it revealed. Jesus marveled at their what? Their unbelief. What it ultimately was, was not just pride. It was not just prejudice. It was unbelief that said, God, we don't believe that you can speak through our neighbor. We don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is because we saw him grow up. And Jesus, and and God, we don't believe that he is your mouthpiece speaking to us right now. And friends, it's the same thing. It's the same thing for us. There are some people who have related to Jesus like this their whole life. They have just been too close to him. What do I mean by that? It was funny. I have this memory. Some of you may remember. I remember my dad, as he got a little bit older, he would read from his Bible up here. And, and he didn't get glasses for a while, and he'd kind of have to do one of these things, you know, like sight in, sight in the vision as he was getting older. And you know what I'm finding now? I can't read stuff so close anymore. I kind of have to put it, put it away from me a little bit. Some of you are like, yeah, welcome, welcome to, to our life, yeah. But you know, sometimes we get, the people have been close to Jesus, close to him because their parents brought him to church every week because they read the Bible around the family table, because they were told every morning you need to read the Bible. And you know what? They get so close to Jesus, like those people at Nazareth, and they say, I'm not listening to him. They've seen it. They've heard it. They've been close to him. They've been sitting in the pews week after week after week after week, hearing the same message over and over and over again, and their prejudice kicks in. And you know what that saying says? Familiarity breeds Contempt. They are familiar enough with the story of who Jesus is that they say, I'm not going to believe that. It's too close. It's unbelief. Let me just make this one observation before we move on. Friends, if you're living in unbelief, whether that's unbelief towards salvation or unbelief towards something else, it's almost certainly connected to pride. Because what was holding these people back? Was it unbelief? Of course it was. But what was connected essentially to their unbelief? Their pride. They couldn't listen to it. They couldn't listen to him. He was too close. And the Bible says unambiguously, God resists the proud. He stiff arms the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Do you want salvation? Do you want to believe? You're going to have to humble. Faith and humility are two sides of the same coin. You can't believe without humbling yourself. And in a sense, you can't humble yourself without believing. It's why repentance and belief in the Bible are two sides of the same coin. Because I cannot come to Jesus Christ by faith unless there is the humility to accept that what I have been doing to date has been wrong. This is such a sobering thing, friends. It's such a sobering thing to recognize how our pride and our prejudice can work together 
to lead to our unbelief. And that's why, thirdly, we need to see not just their perception of him, not just their prejudice toward him, but ultimately Jesus' perspective toward all of it. Jesus' perspective was that he was amazed. He was blown away that his hometown couldn't see it at all. Now, this raises an interesting question. How could Jesus be amazed? Scripture tells us he knew what was in man. He knew what was going on in there. It, it, could it be that Jesus actually was surprised, like he wasn't expecting it? Some people think that he limited himself in this way to be surprised, but not necessarily. How many times have you seen on the news or heard on the news that a big storm was coming and it was going to be huge, and then you looked out your window and you actually saw the storm hit and you were still amazed even though you knew it was coming? How many times have you went out to eat and you saw a plate of food coming and you heard it was a five-star restaurant or some great food that you tried before and you said, this is going to be delicious, and then you took the first bite and you were still amazed. It tasted so good. That's what I personally think is likely going on here. Jesus probably knew that they were going to reject him, but you know what? He was still amazed. He was still amazed and undoubtedly brokenhearted that these people that he grew up with were stuck in their pride and their prejudice to say to him, you're just the carpenter. You're no son of God. You're no savior. You're no Lord. We know your family. Don't get too big for your britches. So we see here Christ's perspective on it was to be amazed. But notice ultimately his perspective on how it related to them. Notice this, Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. You say, he's just giving a proverb here. He's saying a, prov a, a prophet, generally speaking, is respected outside of his town, outside of his family, outside of his immediate household. Do you know he actually had biblical support for this? You can go back to the story of Jeremiah Jeremiah was a man from Anathoth. And we learn in that small town that those same men who he grew up with from his hometown threatened to kill him if he didn't shut up about God's word. Jesus said, a prophet is, is without honor, apparently in his own house, in his own family, in his own place. Jesus could have expected this. But notice then in verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Again, I think this is most likely privately. You say, what in the world? We saw Jesus doing all these amazing works, and now it says he could do no mighty work? Were his hands tied behind his back? Well, Jesus had the power to do the mighty work. Jesus chose not to do the mighty work. Let me put it this way. If you're a parent and you are planning on taking your child out to do something special, you have a desire to do something for them and you have all the power to do it. And then just before you're about to take them on the special event, they act up and they go crazy and they start disobeying you and rebelling against you and having a terrible attitude and you say to them, we're done, we're not going. Did you have the power to take them still? Yes, you did. But could you take them in light of their attitude and of their behavior? No, you could not take them because you would not take them in light of what you needed to teach them. 
And here's the simple point from this passage. Mark is not telling us that Jesus physically had no divine power remaining to do miracles. He wanted to do them. He had a desire to do them. But God's ordinance, God's plan, God's, God's practice toward mankind is to say, I will not reward your stubbornness. I will not reward your unbelief because you and I will, not, will never be in a right relationship unless it is on the basis of humble faith before me, dependence on me. As long as they looked at the messenger that God had sent, Jesus of Nazareth, and said, you're just a carpenter, not the son of God, Jesus would not reveal his power to them. He would not show his grace in another significant way that they could have had had they responded in faith. You see, this story is an utter tragedy. His own hometown. You say, why was Jesus amazed? Because if anyone should have known who he was, it was them. If anyone had known his character in the first 30 years of his life, it was them. If anyone had known his integrity, if anyone had known his commitment to God's will and to scripture in the quiet, ordinary, common things of life, it should have been them. And yet their pride would not allow them to submit to who he was. And they said, no, we are too familiar with who you are and who you are compared to us that we are not willing to listen. Friends, there is a very sobering piece from this story. Verse six says, and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went round about the villages teaching. Friends, do you know that we have no record in our Bible that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth? We have no record that he ever went back to his hometown. Friends, this was their last chance. And their unbelief in the grace of Jesus showing them who he was, the light that he gave them about who he was, caused them to slam the door on their last opportunity to see Jesus for themselves. What's the point? The point is this, friends. If you have been coming to this church or tuning into our live stream week after week after week after week, you have become familiar with all the stories. Maybe you grew up riding the bus to this church. Maybe you grew up coming to this church and sitting in these pews. You've heard it over and over and over and over again. And yet your pride this morning is holding you back from embracing it with both arms from walking with Jesus Christ in faith and in humble obedience. Today is the day to humble yourself and to accept him. Today is the day to put aside your unbelief and accept him on his terms and place your trust on him for your eternal salvation. Friends, you may not have another opportunity when Jesus is revealed to you for you to accept him. Do not push him away to walk away from you one more time. But I also say this, friends, God has graciously placed messengers in your life, people close to you, 
to reveal where you are wrong, to reveal your sin to you, to reveal where you need to grow in your spiritual life. You know who's close to you and you know inwardly who it is that your pride and my pride pushes back against hearing the truth from. No, I can't, I can't hear it from that person. You and I both know. My challenge to you this morning is Jesus is speaking to you through his messengers. Do you remember the story of Josiah in the Old Testament? Josiah, one of the greatest, most righteous Old Testament kings and Josiah gets all worked up about, about cleaning up the nation and having a revival for God. And then he hears that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is coming through to fight against someone else. And he says, I'm going to go fight against him. And Pharaoh sends him a message and says, God told me to do this. Don't come out and fight against me. And do you know what Josiah does in his pride? He says, I'm going anyway. And Second Chronicles 35 says this. They were the words of Pharaoh at the mouth of God. God was speaking to Josiah through a wicked king. And Josiah would not listen in his pride, and he was killed. And his efforts that he had to bring about revival were drastically weakened. And down the tubes, the nation went again. Friends, the simple point is this. We can't allow our pride, and we can't allow our prejudice to those who are closest to us, allow us to stop our ears at what God is trying to tell us about the ways we need to humble ourselves and walk with him. Let's not have unbelief and let's for sure not give in to amazing unbelief. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning. You are so gracious to us to give us second chances and fifth chances and tenth chances and we see here today that you graciously revealed your son to his hometown at Nazareth. They marveled. They were astonished at him. They heard him. They understood him. But their pride, their prejudice, worked against him to create unbelief that led to their destruction. Oh, Father, we pray, if there's even one here today, we think of your word in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Don't harden your hearts in unbelief. If Jesus is speaking to you today by his spirit, won't you listen? Won't you humble yourself? Won't you accept him as your savior today? Put your trust in him.